See, this is the thing. This is what you have to realize, all right? It's like it was always it was always going to end like this. There was never so what? Last week, Vikings are losing. Yeah. Right? They get this miracle play, everyone freaks out, the whole city comes together in this glorious moment of triumph yep. that mostly people are excited about because it was the distinctly unviking thing to do. Yeah, right? because they always choke, right. right? Everyone is so excited because the Vikings finally didn't Viking. But what they didn't consider is that the Vikings were playing the long game. <laughs> because what is a better way to punch everyone in the stomach? It's to pull off the little miracle, get everyone's hopes up. Then next week, the week before, the round before, you could theoretically be hosting a Super Bowl in your own building for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. You just get stomped. You just get you just get beat right when everyone's hopes are up. You lose to a grubby city like Philadelphia. No offense to the grubby Philadelphians <laughs> who are grubby. <laughs> um, and you just, man, it's, so and know- it's just so perfect. It's the like it's like they took they somehow managed to be even more. Of what they've always been. It's honestly, it's impressive. Like it's, it's too yeah. clean of a narrative, actually. Like yeah. if as a story, if there's like no plot twist ever. It's yeah. the same thing every year. Do you know? Um, according to a bartender friend of mine, mm-hmm. Vegas bookies had Vikings winning <laughs> by three to four points. I know, I know they did, and that was that's all part of it. Some people is, are really rich today. Yeah, well, you can get you can like fund your children's college just by betting against betting against Vikings in, in big games when they're favored. Like all you got to do is is lay points against Minnesota. Yeah, and you're bound. You're bound to make bank. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's disappointing. <laughs> We're here. You know. Um, <laughs> you know. I am worried about mm-hmm. what it's going to do for all of the people who are wanting to like Airbnb their houses out yeah. because yeah. now the Philly fans are going to come into like people's homes. Oh, it's a mix of Philly and Boston. And and just be We've like, got... oh yeah, these minutes, I'm just going to like pee all over the rug. Yeah, you it's know? Gonna be, it's going to be bad. Um, I really, I'm really enjoying that this segment has turned anti-Philadelphia so quickly. That's good. I think that's a yeah. great note to start the show on. <laughs> and um, as that, on that note, we probably should just say, Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. I'm a disgruntled Vikings fan. <laughs> and with me, as always, is Laura Zeth. I'm not a disgruntled Vikings fan. Hello. I did watch the game, though. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Eric. Now that you're in the offseason. Um, yep. So, what? Today is January 22nd. We've got sure a is. lovely show for yep. you today. We're going to kind of get back into some things. Um, but before we do any of that... How about the basic rundown? Yeah. So we have all three special episodes coming at you yet Mm -hmm. this month um, because we took a few weeks off because of the holiday and because we have a brand new studio. Yeah, we're in a new new place. The the cats have only yelled at us a little bit. We recorded the query show a little bit earlier today and they mostly just yelled through the entire thing. Yeah. Um, So we, we traded a like teenage podcast where they're too cool for us and a samba band mm-hmm. for like one cat who just like is really into me that's like the same thing as a teenage podcast yeah though. yeah but it's furrier one temperamental cat 
<laughs> anyway, I uh, we are no longer <clears throat> recording in the basement of my apartment building. We are now recording in my home office mm-hmm. that is specifically formatted for print run. Yeah, no, you know, that's good. Maybe we'll get a stencil of our logo on the wall. Actually, we're doing that. N- Nick brought that up. He was like, "We could do a stencil," and I'm like. Mm-hmm. What about the sound mm-hmm. treatment? And he's like, but we could have a stencil. No, no, no. no. We're not going to paint it. We're going to carve it into the wall. I'm well, I own it, it now. Yeah, no. I'm going to take a machete and just carve the loon into all the surfaces of your home. Yeah. It's going to well, be. Well, it's my home now. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea is now everything can just be incredibly damaged right off the bat. Yeah. With my beautiful artwork. But. Yeah. So. Anyway. So we're a little <laughs> behind. Um, yeah. But that's okay because this uh, this room is painted Power Move Blue, um, so we're we're just gonna forge ahead. We've got Power Move Blue. Power Move Blue. That's what I'm calling it. It's not actually called that. Um, and it's not actually a Power Move. Hey, that's not nice. Oh, well. Anyway, um, so we're sitting in the beautiful Van Dusen Power Move Blue office. Brought to you by Super America. <laughs> that, see how that could sound? Super that does America. Sound nice. They could listen and they could sponsor it. But anyway, query show coming to you this week. First pages and writing by reading next week. Writing by reading is going to be really fun. We're going to be reading Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, mm-hmm. which is. Um, let me just let me just frame this for you. I I uh, I I had this on hold for the through my local library and I got like the notification where it's like, hey, you have three weeks to read this. And I was like, shit, I guess I'm reading this now. Um, so I text Eric and I go, hey, Eric, we're going to read this for writing by reading because now I have to read it. Um, and he goes, good. Let me know what you think. And I go, well, didn't you like it? And he goes, we'll talk about it when you're done. <laughs> so I am. I am really excited to have this conversation because I have no idea how Eric feels. Yeah, and that's the premise of every Print Run episode, which is trying to suss out my emotions on things. Yeah. (laughs) But so we've been off a couple weeks with the move, and a few small things have happened. I would say before before we get into the thing that we want to talk about today, I want to quickly touch on the thing we aren't talking about today, which is Fire and Fury. Yep. Because guess what? Everyone has forgotten about it. We actually bumped no. it from this episode. <laughs> we had this follow-up thing. We had there was like this funny thing because like everyone, everyone was buying the wrong Fire and Fury on Amazon, and so like some other book was like, from years and years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, it was like suddenly like having a surge in sales because everyone kept buying the wrong thing because all of us are really smart consumers and the market is um, completely logical, but. Um, it got cut because we realized that no one is talking about this book anymore. And one of the key things we mentioned the other day when we were talking about the project was that we we predicted that pretty soon no one would care about it. And what about – how does that play in to the idea of having to move books and sell things out of stores and stuff? And the truth is it kind of happened that way. Like now it sort of did progress through think piece culture. And now we'll see what happens. I mean, it'll still sell a little, I'm sure, but it's theoretically it's, still on the New York Times bestseller list right now. The book is an afterthought now, but, though. Yeah, it really it is because like, everybody knows it, what's in it now. Yeah. So I don't know. I find that to be interesting. It'll be worth monitoring to see how much people. I mean, think about how many things happen per week that you then forget, like three hours later. Like things are moving so fast, and I think when you try to publish a book in that sphere, it's going to end up um, with much shorter of a shelf life than you think, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what we're seeing. But Anyway, that's an aside to the real things. Of Just the to day. give you the glimpse of the print run that almost was. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, 
Um, so I have something um, which could a segment that could also be titled Fire and Fury. Um, mm. So if you're familiar with the Midwest Writers Workshop, um, it's been going on for 44 years. It's in Indiana and is a big deal. You know, very, very uh, good faculty at this workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, so two weeks ago, I'm going to like take you through a little bit of a timeline sure. here. Sure. Two weeks ago, Roxanne Gay on Twitter called them out for refusing to let Sarah Hollowell, who is a um, who is a writer who's been involved with the organization for many years, um, the the writers workshop refused to let Sarah Hollowell on the organizational committee um, because she's fat. Hmm. So specifically, like there was a board meeting where they were talking about adding people onto this committee, and um, Hollowell's name came up, and one board member said something along the lines of, do we really want someone like her representing us, like referring to her body as, you know, fat and disgusting and horrible? Um, Obviously, that leaked. Um, Uh And so Roxanne Gay, with all of her no-nonsense pull in the the Twitter sphere and beyond, (coughs) um, called them out for it. you know, a couple of days, a day or so later, the writer's workshop apologized really poorly for it, um, which, you know, like has been the case of every organization ever right. forever. Um, but then <clears throat> last week, um, Summer Heacock, who is a another writer who has been on the board of directors of the Midwest Writers Workshop, um, tweeted a bunch of images of emails and these emails revealed that she was removed. She was fired from the board of directors for telling Sarah Hollowell what, um, what people were saying about her. So then they canceled the entire conference. So that is kind of the, the saga of the Midwest writers conference over the past two weeks. Well, yeah. So now, let's, yeah. just taking a step back for a second. Um, like, let's just start with, what like what the initial flare-up was here yep. right like they had it, it leaked out through this channels that clearly uh summer heacock was um you know a part of it sort of you know leaked this to this person who was then found out that you know the rest of these people in this organization were saying fairly nasty things about her in a pretty demeaning way and um such that they were planning to remove her from a position of influence right like i mean the, yeah. this matters i think in some regard because of you know sort of the power dynamics in place such that they are for a writers conference right like they're saying we don't want this type of person to represent us yeah and not we don't want this type of person whose work right 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 and is that's such a thing that we don't want and that's to the be thing and, what's, by, yeah. and it presents all of the standard um it presents all the standard questions that we ask anytime anything like this comes up, which is like, oh, my gosh, how could someone like that? How could people think this? How could people argue this? How could this make its way into, you know, written correspondence? All the things that make something a slip up like this crazy. But to me, the bit that really that really sets out to me is just how unprepared they were for the backlash. Of yeah. this sort of thing. And that's obviously no one is ever prepared for backlash for anything they do, because if you thought that you were going to get the kind of backlash you end up getting, you wouldn't do it in the first place, theoretically. But the thing of it is, is 
there is clear it, it's kind of clear that they didn't really think what they were saying or the t- line of logic they were taking was that incorrect or that wrong you know they sort of viewed it as just a fact of life that they might think that they could at a writers conference again something that is theoretically about you know the work um, use you know an issue like a person's weight to remove them from a representative position and I don't know like it's crazy to me how wrong-footed they were caught by this response you know and how poorly they handled it in the aftermath because it seems so obvious in retrospect but I think it speaks to a certain like really flawed mindset that a lot of things um, that a lot of organizations and a lot of people in publishing you know, in publishing too, right? Like the, we're the people who are supposed to be the, you know, the woke ones. We're the people <laughs> who are supposed to be the good guys. You know, we're the, you know, people equate the book industry with the resistance, which is an idea that we've like pushed out a lot. But um, you know what I'm saying? Like this, a friendly writers conference is not the place you expect to find something like this. And yet. And yet, um, you know, I I kept coming back to. You know, obviously, there are many, many people out in this world who are garbage and they're going to be garbage to people. And there's lots of um, fat phobia that is, you know, embroiled in our entire culture. Right. So acknowledging that, I would like to point out that this is a well-regarded, many, many decades old, like important professional event. Yeah. However... I would also like to point out that this event is run by volunteers. Uh Um, And that is something that is, you know, very, very common throughout writers conferences, throughout science fiction fantasy conferences. Like so much of these conferences, which for the record, I love conferences. Conferences are great. Um, But these conferences are you know, kind of they're like bootstrapped, you know, they're just like some people who are living in a place and they want to create an, a, a, a place where writers can come, they can learn, they can interact with one another that, you know, you can bring people in to yeah. take pitches or give speeches or teach or whatever. You know, it's very, very from the ground up. You're sort of coming up with it on the back of a napkin without yeah. much consideration for larger sets of protocols exactly and so what happens there and i think we've been seeing a lot of this um is that you don't like all of this works fine until it doesn't yeah you know i've been seeing in past years um issues with science fiction fantasy conventions where like something happens where like a new type of person comes to this event and mm-hmm. they're harassed yeah. or, you know, something, some issue is handled in an inappropriate way or, you know, like there's, or the board of directors, you know, kind of engage in some sort of cronyism. And, you know, there's kind of like all of these issues that very much stem from the fact that these are people just kind of like doing the best they can and making it up and that they don't, often have any experience in this sort or, of thing. Or they're doing, I mean, the best they can, but maybe they're doing, you know, they're executing a very particular and personal vision yeah. of how a conference should look. And sometimes that vision doesn't always reflect the larger direction we'd hope publishing would go. Yeah. You know, and it's it feels like there's somewhat of a pattern, right? Like anytime anyone starts talking about a convention or a conference or anything like that, there's always a story, right? Like there's always something like 
every conference or whatever you uh, that comes up, you always end up thinking, oh man, but except for that one time when this person got treated poorly because of reason X, and <clears throat> it just it consistently comes up. And you had what I thought was a really good idea earlier today about trying to like tackle all of these things at once by coming by like instituting a little bit more consistency. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, like we could even file this under, you know, harebrained scheme of the week. You know what I mean? Where it's like our previous one was like unions for publishers. Like, you know, and that, you know, we were arguing about as being a really great idea because you have, you know, the power of the many, you know, and I feel like a lot of those similar issues are being reflected in events, especially volunteer run events. You know, there aren't protocols involved, you know, like most, (coughs) most events, harassment policies and discrimination policies are just kind of like made up. They've got lots of loopholes. Very lots of personal discretion. Exactly. You know, there, um, there aren't necessarily steps in place and, you know, publishing will, publishing gives a lot of power to these, to these conferences you know they give they you know the industry relies on these you know as ways to promote authors as ways to get information out there um in ways that you know yeah an individual is sanctioning um but at the you know at the same time um it's you know it's it's just kind of like it's made up as it goes along you know, like what what about an ombudsman? Like what about just you standard know, rules for organizing standard you know, rules? Just like because it's anything that can kind of take the structural power away from an individual's, you know, discretion with these kind of things. Because the truth is, and this is why I think, you know, an organization that is as long standing as the Midwestern Writers Workshop you know, can get caught so flat-footed by something that seems, in retrospect, so obvious. Um, it's just because there's no, there's nothing to turn to. You know, there's no, like, set of policies or things that really come into trying to make an event that fits within, you know, that kind of matches up the overall mood and direction of the larger writing and publishing community, you know. And it's like, if we're going to build something that works for more people as an industry, then yeah. there does need to be a little bit more communication like that. And you do need to have some more shared ideas and how these places are constructed and created and how they deal with things like this. And it just, it got me thinking about something else that happened over the last couple of weeks. And um, it was it's seemingly small and it is small. It's not seemingly small, but um, it got it. I think a larger idea that you see a lot more. And so some there's a new organization. I'm not going to give their name because it doesn't seem worth it. But um, <laughs> some new science. It's not really an organization. Right. It's yeah. mostly one dude. Yeah. It's <laughs> literally new, one yeah. dude. So some new science fiction fantasy. I guess they're trying to be a guild or an organization. Um, they kind of stirred the pot a little bit this week by claiming to have created this space that's completely apolitical is their idea. It's just about right. stories. They're like, yeah, we're going to be the place where people with science fiction and fantasy stuff can come and just completely ignore politics and all, all you know, sci- the best science fiction and fantasy writing is apolitical and has nothing to do with, you know, the politics of the age and we need to create a space for that. And they even started like, you know, they at one point they started tweeting at like N.K. Jemison and, um, you know, suddenly there was an argument there and all that kind of stuff. And um, it became this whole thing where every, suddenly everyone in the writing community felt the need to like 
get their dunk in on this person. And I think the reason it kind of took off in the way that it did from a relatively like, you know, this person doesn't matter in any real sense, you know, like, but like the idea kind of struck people. And the reason it did, I think, is because of this idea that there could even be a space that is apolitical at all, you know, and people started arguing that, um, you know, oh, well, no, the best, the best stories, you know, are the ones with politics and the best stories are the ones that grapple with ideas. And I was kind of watching it and thinking, well, every, there's no ignoring it. There's no such thing as apolitical, you know? And the only reason anyone would ever argue that position is if they perceive themselves as operating from a position of neutrality. You know what I mean? If they're the ones, like no one, everyone always thinks they're the one who's apolitical, right? Yeah. They're just the one telling the truth, telling stories, and everyone else is the extremists, you know, who are getting into politics. And the reason that's relevant to this, you know, Midwestern writers thing is because these errors get made when you what you think the stuff you're saying and the stuff you're arguing it's just common sense that doesn't have any effect on any other larger idea. You're just, you know, doing something that's completely neutral and apolitical. And it's the same thing here. And the truth is that anytime, you know, someone starts arguing that what they're doing is, you know, the thing without politics, the truth is that they're basically saying we don't like the politics that you've got bringing in. It's a perfectly political point. But the yeah. way to push back against that, I think, and the way to handle both these situations that we're talking about is to dis kind of dispense with the idea that all of us aren't without bias. And that's why I think your idea about like coming up with, you know, guidelines and rules and like checks that can a like, network yeah, just of like organizations. Yeah. That can kind of like adhere to a certain set of, um, you know, guidelines, you know, anything like that. I think it would be really good because it would push against the implicit bias of every single person everywhere. You know, you and I both is aware of things as we try to be. All the time we probably do things that we perceive as apolitical but really are. You know, that's the truth of everyone. Like, And it's you have to push against that. And so when you see someone arguing online that like, oh, man, I just wish, you know, science fiction and fantasy was apolitical. I mean, the, the two options are either A, they're an idiot, or B, <laughs> which I haven't ruled out in this case, but and, – and B – they're intentionally trying to, you know, move the window in the direction that they want by painting a viewpoint they don't like as more extreme than it actually is. And it's, to me, these things are connected. And it comes back to this idea of just making sure that we all understand our own biases and create rules beyond our own, like, individual personal judgment calls that might be able to actually stand as institutions. You yeah. Know? Bottom, bottom line um is that do you ever like see like if you ever really read a fun fact or something and they're like there's a law about you know owning a rooster in this town you know what i mean and it's always like goofy and you're like how could anybody make a law about that yeah um and it's because all of like all of kind of the 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 rules and the organization organizational factors in this country are are essentially founded on blood right like yeah. you know workplace regulations exist because if it didn't like people had died like yeah, before no, they it's exist all right just, you're always every um, rule is pushed is pushing back against some exactly uh, yeah exactly so like you know just even by sharing a you know a community 
with other yeah. people who do conferences. You know, you make it so that those mistakes, you know, those those rules that are written in blood only have to be written, you know, only have to have one, you know, issue that causes it. It's not that it needs to happen in every single area. Right. Also, you know, publishing is so good and and you know, the writing community and everything, you know, they're not the same thing. They're related, but they're not the same they're thing. You know, we're thing. so good at wringing our hands about like bringing, you know, marginalized people yes. into the fold, you yes. know, people of color or queer people or We claim you know, to really love this stuff. Disabled, you know, yeah. you know, you know, disabled yeah. authors. Right. And, you know, we we think, you know, we're you know just standing there going Oh, I don't know how to get all these people in here. But then, you know, you have, you know, only people who are conventionally attractive on your board. And, you know, you're disallowing people who are of a different shape, size, color, orientation, etc. on your governing board. And you're keeping them out because you don't want the optics of that. Well, guess what that's saying? Yeah, it's just it's all. It's all connected, right? And I guess the reason, you know, maybe, you know, I think there are going to be some listeners who hear this and think, well, yeah, it was a, it was a screw up by this one organization, but what's the big deal? You know, we don't have to deal with this kind of stuff on any kind of mass way. But the truth is that we, you know, the writing community and by extension, the conference community and by extension, the publishing community, you know, theoretically, we're holding ourselves to a higher standard of inclusion and ideas, you know, like that's why we feel that you know i mean anyone who's written anything believes that they've written something that is theoretically worth sharing with someone else i like we're not afraid of the idea of having ideas that we think matter and with that comes you know i mean you should you should have to be held a little bit more accountable in that and like if writing is going to be the progressive community it wants to be then there needs to be some intentionality in the way some of these smaller you know institutions and organizations are formed and um it's and I think the first step is sort of, you know, broader, you know, like talking points and precepts and ways to put these things together. And the other one is just understanding that we all come from we all have blind spots in our politics and in our um you know, and in the way we see the world. And as such, we can't just rely on personal judgment all the time. That's why representation matters, you know, that's why all these things you know, actually play a part even when we don't necessarily off the top of our heads think that they do because um, otherwise you're going to end up with this and this and, you know, this sort of slip up all the time. And now what have we've got? We've got a writing conference that's, you know, shut down for a year. And that I think and we might can, never come back. And we can all agree um, that that's a bummer. You know, I mean, yes, they needed to, you know, we want this organization to, you know, pay a cost for having done the bad thing that they did. But like, at the but, end of the day, well, we want writing conferences to exist. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, like, Indiana they, is not a hotbed right, of writer or of I mean. like publishing activity. That's like, what a I mean. so conference like, should and yeah, you we, know will exist there. Like, if and the, it needs to be a good one. If the goal is to proliferate these things, which it should be, then some intentionality has to go into their formation and their sustaining. And I just think that's kind of where we're at. I'm changing tacks here. <laughs> great, great transition. Thank you. Um, I think that it's, you know, it's January. Mm -hmm. I think it's really, really, really important that we do the first James Patterson book of the week <laughs> of 2018. Good. Yeah, I know. I need it. I need it right yeah. now. Um, so this, uh, just so you know, was on page four of James Patterson's releases, um, organized by launch date. 
And so <laughs> so it's with the newest one being like September of 2018. So this is on page four. God. Um, this one's going to be pretty fun, Eric. I uh-huh. think you're going to like it. Uh-huh. So this uh, this is a book by James Patterson. Yeah. Um, coming out this week or very soon. Or Well, it, this book is coming out on February 6, 2018. Uh-huh. But they're running a pretty aggressive pre-order campaign and including a nice deal with Audible, just in case. Uh-huh. Um, some dude is the narrator of it. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason you want to get in on this book soon is for something that I'm going to get to very soon. Um, but so here's the title. Are you ready for it? Uh-huh. Murder Beyond the Grave. Hell yes. Colon. James Patterson's Murder is Forever, <laughs> comma, book three. You know, he's like he's like really into murder these days. I was like looking. Of course he, he's into murder. Yeah, he's but, James Patterson. <laughs> but like more especially into murder. He had some other story like in like CBS about murder today. Like he's he's a little bit murdery. There's murder twice in this, so there are mm-hmm. well, two different subtitles. Yeah. yeah, there are two subtitles in this and two mentions of murder. I love that there's a colon and a comma. That's a power move. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's great. Um, so this is more than just one book, though, Eric. Uh-huh. This is two true crime thrillers as seen on Discovery's Murder is Forever TV series, premiering February 2018. So this is... Is kind of the the book version of two stories that are told on a new Discovery ch- show. I didn't know James Patterson and Discovery were working together. This is the thing. But I'm not surprised. This is the thing with him that I find so incredible. It's that every single piece of content he has is already in like eight other different forms at once, and is all pulled. Like you never know. Everything is already a TV show and an audio book and like a mini series and like a special on like 60 minutes. And Honestly, I'm jealous. Like oh, well, I yeah. joke about James Patterson a lot and we make fun of him a lot, but it's only because if I don't laugh, I'll cry like because it, I have so much jealousy <laughs> for him and his success. Well, like in like 2050, you're going to be able to just buy like a little chip that you can stick in your ear and it's going to implant into your spinal cord and you're just going to be able to just have all the content, the means of dispersing it into your brain are going to have completely gone away. It's just going to be, here's how we can take the James Patterson murder story and just enter it into your sensory. When is James Patterson <laughs> going to be the author of my dreams? He already probably is. I mean, like, like yeah, it pretty every soon night, be able to pay. different James Patterson. Yeah, it'll be murderous, murderous forever. And you're going to have no control over whether or not you're even reading it or whether it's like, be, <laughs> like it's, it's just going to become your consciousness. You're I get a like, solid eight and a half hours a night. That's a lot of James time. <laughs> he could fill James. James, why haven't you filled that time? Yeah. And the you're best, leaving it on the table. And the best part is that this book comes out on February 6th. And there is on uh, the Amazon listing for this book. There is no mention of the exact premiere date for the show. Uh-huh. But I really hope that JP is getting in before the show does. Yeah. That would be great. Um, but so this is going to be on tv series it's Uh true crime Uh so it's even more murdery because it's real it's even more murdery because it's real (laughs) someday that's gonna like appear on the top of like a book jacket or something i hope so yeah i'll be yeah that'd be great um okay so you ready Mm -hmm. the first story is called murder beyond the grave stephen small has it all i feel like that's the start of a rhyme it kind of like is. Like it should be like. Stephen Small has yeah, it all. There should be like some yeah. little thing. All right, yep. you, sorry. 
Stephen Small has it all. A Ferrari, fancy house, loving wife, and three boys. Three beautiful large sons. <laughs> but the only thing he needs right now is enough air to breathe. Kidnapped, buried in a box, and held for ransom, Stephen has 48 hours of oxygen. The clock is ticking. It's so literal. Like, when I got to that sentence, right now he needs enough air to breathe, I was kind of, like, thinking maybe, like, family life was stifling him a little bit. Like, it was sort of like a metaphor. No, but no, no metaphors out, It turns in out JP he's literally land. in a box. Yeah. Like, needing oxygen. I'm pretty oxygen. sure yeah. that was, like, a season arc on Bones. <laughs> there was a serial killer called the Gravedigger that would, like, <laughs> bury people. Yeah. And once they buried Bones and Hodgins in a car and they did, like, some science stuff and, like poked the tire to get more air in from the tire and then they made like an oxygen scrub or something like that to make more oxygen with science. Wow. I hope that this book is as good as that episode What could was. ever be as good as Bones though, right? Right. Um, um, okay, so that's the first one. Second one is Murder in Paradise. Mm-hmm. High in the Sierra Nevada mountains, developers Jim and Bonnie Hood excitedly tour Camp Nelson Lodge. They intend to buy and mo- modernize this beautiful rustic property, but the locals don't like rich outsiders changing their way of life. After a grisly shooting, everybody will discover just how you can make a killing in real estate. Okay, so hearing that description, I'm definitely cheering for the locals shooting people. Who is dead in this, do we know. think? I don't know. You're gonna am, have to you're gonna have to get the brain chip, I'm Laura. Re- you don't get to I, know the story. <laughs> I know. You know, also, um when I read developer, I was like, okay, software developers, where's the hacking? And then I got to like rustic cabin and I was very confused. Mm-hmm. Um but you know what? That's on me for assuming. You know what they say about when you assume things. Yeah. Anyway, so that is a twofer Get it well, it's hot. Murder beyond the grave, colon, James Patterson's Murder is Forever, comma, book three. I would like for James Patterson to sell like a set of clamps that can like hold my eyes open like angry, um, (laughs) like like, robot chicken style. And I can just consume James Patterson content all day, every day until the day that that I die. I would love that. That'd be great. There's enough of it. I bet I could start reading James Patterson novels right now and never finish until I'm dead. Actually... Probably if yeah. you were a sl- you are. Yeah. If you were a slow reader and then you could always like switch to the Italian and the Spanish yeah. and the German yeah. versions. Yeah, it would work. Yeah. Um, so that's how I plan to go out. But um, <laughs> we have we have something else of actual substance to talk about. today. Uh, James Patterson is right. always of substance. You're right. That How dare I? Um, <laughs> but we wanted to get back to the New York Times. Uh, bestseller list for a second because it's been it's been like a year now, right? Since they since, changed their their bestseller formatting, well, mainly cutting they, a bunch. of I was going to say specifically since they cut a bunch of lists, right? Like they shrunk it under the premise of, um, you know, how can you know we're going to devote all this attention to all this other format of covering books, right? That was kind of the basic idea. It's and, been a year. It's been a year, and we're kind of looking at things and. I think we both kind of agreed, and you you were talking to an editor friend of yours who also agreed that since the change, we've started interacting with the list a little bit differently. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, all of this is with a little bit of a grain of salt because obviously we have, like, professional stakes and what's, you know, on the bestseller list. Yeah. Um, but with the function of shrinking the New York Times bestseller list. Um, 
means that it's really, really, really hard for kind of outliers to jump in. Yeah. Um, you know, like if a book makes it onto the general fiction hardcover list, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of pretty much know what book that's going to be. You know? Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, it's it's going to be the heavily marketed A-list title from a brand name author, right? Like the thing with the bestseller list is I feel that it's its usage no longer aligns with what the product actually is. Does that make sense? Explain like, what you mean by so that. So right now, or the way people used to use the bestseller list is they used to use it, honestly, to find new books. Right. Yeah, At least find out what everybody re- else is reading. I mean, reading. we in the industry probably use it a little bit differently. You know, we use it to kind of trace trends and things. But even that is the same spirit of, you know, a reader, you know, opening the New York Times and seeing what the bestsellers are and using it as a means of, okay, what's everyone reading? What are the hot books right now? What should I go buy? You know, and the effect of cutting, the effect of cutting all these lists means that all you're ever seeing on the bestseller list is the same books. Over and over and over again. And, like, you know, your friend was kind of making this point that, you know, most of the list is filled with things that have been on there for, you know, 15 weeks, for, you know, 20 weeks, sometimes for things that have even been on there longer. And it's like, and it's always authors you've already heard of. You know, it's the authors who, um, who I guess maybe the way to think about it is like their name on the cover is bigger than the title. Yeah, you know, like, like literally and figuratively. Like, yeah, no, but but I'm, what I mean by that is like it's just brand name, household name authors who are selling books because it's them, you yeah. know, as opposed to it being the book itself. John Green's new book, you know, you've you've got, um, yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson who's been on the list for thirty seven weeks. You know, you've you've got just yeah. I mean, it's a it's, lot of the same book. It's Grisham, Lee Child, James Patterson, Dan Brown. Dan Brown. I mean, this is who's on what is now one of the only lists. You know, this is print and ebook fiction. Like, and there are always a few you know that sneak in. But the point is that it's gotten clogged because there's less categories, and when there's there's less categories and there's less. Um, you know, and we talked that one time when we that person was, you know, trying to game the bestseller list, right? When they were trying to Laney Serum. Yeah, shout out. Um, but it's all based on, you know, these kind of mass pre order campaigns, right? Like that's how you can kind of get on. And like it just feels to me the spirit of the thing, at least how people are trying to use it, it doesn't necessarily line up anymore because um you're not actually discovering anything new on there anymore. And so you and I were kind of doing some thinking like well, how can we, like, how do you fix this? Like, what can you do to, like, if you were trying to, like, redesign this? Because one thing I think we're both frustrated with is whatever the big new initiative that we've been waiting for, you know, from New York Times yeah. books, where is it? You know, like, it's... So let's let's pause on that for a second. So with the change of the New York Times bestseller list being less about discovery and more about, hey, this is, uh, like, perennially popular, right? Yeah. Um, That's a good so way with, to put it. Just with like that old change, yeah. with that change, um, what we would have thought we would have seen is that the new stuff that the New York Times was doing um, would be more geared towards debuts or you know fresh things, you know, few more reviews, mm-hmm. you know, more more interviews by people you've never heard of or yeah. like maybe don't have a man booker yeah. or a, you know, Pulitzer nomination or whatever. Um but it, they've kind of just been 
doing the same thing. Just with less lists. Just with less lists. Like, to yeah. be fair, the New York Times has had a little bit of a shakeup with personnel in, yeah. in the books department. So we're still in transition a little bit. So maybe the new, you know, maybe the the new people in charge will yeah. will be changing some things. Um, but it's kind of just, like, the same. It is kind of the same. It's just smaller. And, like, it's, you know... It kind of gets at the question of like, what is what is the marker of success in book publishing now, yeah. right? Like, what does it mean? Like, because the bestseller list is kind of when everyone's like, you know, having their you know childhood dream of being an author. That's what you're thinking of. You're thinking of being yeah. on the New York Times. Like, that is the thing. That's the quintessential benchmark of book success. And there are mind, books right? that will never, ever, ever be able to be on the list because they've just done away with some of the lists. Well, they've done away with some of the lists and the lists that do exist are clogged by campaigns that simply have no relation to the sort of campaign of the new book you're trying to discover. Yeah. Right. Like, especially now in this era of, um, you know, it feels like they're on the mid list. In a lot of publishing houses shrinking, right? You've got big books and you've got small books. And the campaigns for the big book and the campaign for the small book, they're different, you know? And like mm-hmm. it's tough to like the sales campaigns are different and they're very risk averse, as we say nearly every show, whenever we're discussing anything. And everybody's cr- risk averse forever a, and ever. But it creates it what it the effect of that is it creates a very uninteresting bestseller list that's filled with a bunch of books that you probably haven't even heard of the book. You probably just know the author names. Like, oh, look, another one from Dan Brown. Like, I actually right now could tell you all the authors we just saw, and I could name none of the titles. You know, actually, me like, too. Like oh. Lee Child, Dan Brown, all the all these people that we've heard of a million times. Like, yeah, I know them, and like, it's just another one in their set. And like, it just got me thinking. Like, what can we do to change? Um, you know, like if you were redesigning the list, because one thing it's like, yeah. well, you're not going to do away with the list. Obviously, I don't want to do away with the list. People love the list. I yeah. love the list. But you've got to tweak the list somehow. And I think How one, would you tweak it? Well, so there are a few ways. I mean, you could do like you could add in some in more interesting, you know, drill downs, like maybe, you know, a newcomers only bestseller list. When you say newcomers, do you mean like, debuts or do you mean like biggest jump in sales this week kind of thing? Either way, I mean, so in my head, I've got this idea of like, you know, what if there was a bestseller list for, um, you know, two, books released within the last two months, maybe even by, you know, first time authors, mm. you know, like you would still get a, you'd get a, first of all, you'd get a really interesting list. I would love but, a debut but list. But you would also get, you'd get an interesting list, but you would, and you would also still get a list full of star power. Like that suddenly, suddenly all your authors aren't nobodies on that list. You know, like you're still getting like the New York Times bestseller still wants to be a bunch of heavy hitters that feel with some prestige. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. I got no issue with that. But like you are getting you would get a more interesting subsection, you know, that way. Better for discoverability. And like if you think about the New York Times book section is not just about reporting a lot of it is about discoverability that's why a new york times book review was so big you know i heard today of a book that we got um that got a notice that the book is going to be reviewed by the new york times and the publisher moved up the date like that's how important it is for discoverability it's it's the it's the biggest thing that matters it still is yep and so you know a a debut you know you you'd have some it would it would go back to that you know it would go back to that it wouldn't just be 
hey, look, people are still buying this book. That see that that everybody knows about. Yeah, yeah. See, that's the thing that um, observation you just made there is the is the one everybody makes every time they look at the list, and it's also the least interesting one. Yeah. You know, oh look, these same people, and like, so you had a point earlier about maybe we could like make a separate list for the ones with the, like you could kind of grandfather them out. You know, like I don't know, it's. You could take the books that are on the, the double digits. Yeah, exactly. Like you could make like once a book, you could give them like emeritus status or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> like a professor, and, yeah. like an old crusty yeah. ass professor. And like Dan Brown, <laughs> you are now a crusty professor. And you could, and then you could free up space for others. And you know, the argument against that is probably something like, well, we do still want the data. Like you, you know, the idea, the information that the current bestseller list provides, you know, to people in the industry and as you know, raw information is really. It is really good and it's important, but we could still have that while also sacrifice while also changing up the space where consumers are interacting with it. Or you even know? just going to like twenty five. Yeah, make it a little bit bigger. Yeah. Just a tiny bit longer. Like how hard is it to find that information? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I I want this to be more than just reporting. And I think that's that's what I, you know, keep getting at because yeah. I want to know like what I should like what I should be reading and like what I should care about you know we mentioned fire and fury at the beginning of this episode and about how we cut it well fire and fury is still on the bestseller list because mm-hmm. it hasn't been released for this week and it might still be on there um but that like but but it doesn't mean anything yeah because you know they couldn't they didn't print enough books like that's why <laughs> but like everybody knows what's in the book they still have like pre-ordered the book and are gonna buy the book to to have it. Um, but I'm not sure that that's a marker of success in the way that we want it. So it's, it's yeah. certainly not a complete marker, you know, and it, it doesn't tell the whole story with how a publication plan is going and it never is going to a list of sales is never going to tell the whole, sto- whole story of how a book is taking off, whether yeah. it's being talked about, you know, there are books here that never make the list. And yet those are the ones that are still being optioned into movies and things like that. Like there are plenty of ways to be a really directly commercially successful book with having nothing to do with the bestseller list but like you would get a you could work a little bit closer toward the real picture by changing this up and the reason we're talking about it today is because it just feels like um you know it just feels like we we didn't quite get the the adjustment to more dynamic coverage that we thought we were going to get you know so i've been i've been thinking a lot about fire and fury mostly and about kind of that that big sale high impact first week and then it's done kind of thing right um and i am curious so as as an industry we have in the past several years since since the recession we have been moving towards um kind of less big ticket book, big advance kind of thing and more reliance on a mid list. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and not not necessarily um, reliance on a mid list as a way to like pay a publisher's bills. But I, I mean, in um, I feel like publishers now are a little bit more willing to to have, you know, house authors that they try to break out a little bit later yeah you know there's kind of this idea where you know 
before, if you were a midlist author, like, good luck, you're going to stay a midlist author. But now there's a little bit of possibility because I think um, what publishers are realizing is that with the shorter news cycle and the shorter attention span, um, that a successful book is not just, hey, I sold 200,000 copies in one week and then everybody forgot about it. Yeah. But I think they're more interested in, you know, an author who can produce 10 books over 10 years and they sell well and then slowly that goes up and then the purchasing yeah. power, you know, is exponential. And, and then, then you're selling backlist. And, and then you're, you're selling backlist and then a book comes out and then it's a huge deal. Yeah. You know and what I mean? you're also not overpaying for any of them. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, I just mentioned John yeah. Green as like yeah. one of the emeritus guys, but I, you know, 10-ish years ago... I like lucked into an arc of looking for Alaska and there was only like, you know, well, there was not that many made actually. There were not that many made at all. But a lot of people use this list to find green eventually. And now it's like, yeah. And now it's just like, well, of course John green's number one, like, you know, whatever, like now he could do anything. He didn't even like announce the book until about a month before this, this book, came out turtles all the way down yeah and you know but he had to work up to that it's yeah. not just that that gigantic gigantic push and so i think that debut list or something something like that where it's you know more attention to overall lasting impact and not just huge sales numbers mm-hmm. um might be interesting you know i don't know exactly how to report that based on nielsen book scan numbers um. No, I mean it's t- it's tough, and I mean I think the obvious, you know, the obvious counterpoint to all of this is, well, that's not what the bestseller list is, and my counterpoint to that is, well, it's certainly how people are trying to use it. Yeah. You know, like, and that's kind of my point is that the function of the list no longer matches up with what people are trying to do with it, and I think that not that this is a severe issue, but like. There's an opportunity to kind of, you know, bolster everyone's chances here with just a few little tweaks. And I think like, you know, on the occasion of them, you know, having cut stuff without really adding anything compelling in its place, it makes me, you know, makes me wish that, okay, well, people love the list. Let's just tweak the list a little bit. Let's make some things, you know, I don't know, people would, that'd be interesting. I don't know. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated thing, but, you know, I guess. The fact that we're complaining about it and wanting more and we seriously had a conversation today about how we're both upset that we're both out of articles because we value the articles so much more. <laughs> I always when go we're through really mine, just Yeah. Like accidentally refreshing it, you know, like it's I'm mo- it's a I rookie waste, move, Eric. I waste most of my New York Times clicks accidentally closing out of the tab because I'm overwhelmed <laughs> by the tabs. And then I'm like, shit, no, I needed that one. And then it's like I, I read about. Fifty percent of the New York Times tabs I actually open, yeah, and that's it a just problem. you just burn through them. It's mm. terrible. Well, I'll never subscribe. But it says, but it says something. <laughs> we'll probably subscribe. Yeah, but no. it says something that you know on a day when we wanted to talk about the bestseller list, all we wanted to do was read reviews and no, articles. No, you know no. what I mean? No, it's and, a great thing. Yeah. It's it's this is coming from a place of enthusiasm. I just I want. More. Um, I, want I want more. more. And, and I want more lists. Like, I want more and varied <laughs> lists. And I think that that's um, a very easy change to make. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to bring you to the pub tip. Please. 
Um, and this one is uh, very relevant to both uh, me and Eric at this point in our <laughs> lives. Um, so this is this is important, folks. It's January. It's resolution query season. Um, please, 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 before you send, before you smash that send button, <laughs> check to see if the agent is open to queries. Um, you know, don't trust that chart that you made two months ago. Don't trust, you know, the the manuscript wish list yeah. website. Yeah. Um, because a lot of that information isn't there. Like I am currently close to queries because I just moved. Yeah. You know, and I'd rather like have you all wait an extra month and then not get mad at me for not responding to your queries right, right away. Um, than to just have them linger in my inbox because that's stressful. Eric is also close to queries right now. But the point is, I think, like, just, you know, there's a lot of, before you send things off, um, you're, you're doing yourself an immeasurably big favor just by checking guidelines one last time, you know? Yeah. See if they're open. Make sure you've got things formatted in the way they want it, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, I would say, I mean, what percentage of your queries are just incorrectly following guidelines i mean it's got to be close to 50 percent. honestly i would say it's more than 50 and so all you have to do to and we talk about this on the queer show a lot so you know subscribe but also it's so easy just to follow whatever posted rules there are and you're going to literally raise your chances by half you know and it's so like yeah no check to see if the agent's close check to see if they want things a certain way and just that few minute it also offers a chance at personalization you know you maybe you'll get it you'll see something in there that yeah. lets you tailor your email a little bit but like the point is dear Laura I'm excited that you are now open again for queries dear Laura. like that's lovely <laughs> um, yeah so I don't know it's just it's just the double basic check. the basic fundamentals of double checking and it sounds kind of like a banal thing but like honestly like just do it because you'll you're going to cut out yourself ahead of like most of the people. In it'll give inbox. you an extra minute, but it'll also give you a nice minute to meditate on whether this person might be a good fit for you. Yeah. And that is a lovely thing. And with that, I'm going to bring us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for joining us in this, our brand new power move blue <laughs> episode of print run um <laughs> remember uh our query first pages and writing by reading are still coming this month um you'll get a bunch of them really soon if you are a patreon subscriber if you are not it is still eight dollars for everything so get in on it send us your queries and first pages we are at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you for our special episode on Thursday. See ya.